2: Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center, broadcasting live from um, here in Santa Monica, California, the heart of Silicon Beach. We got a great show for you, and you can get more information on the show on our blog, uh, which is at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com.
3: All right. So we have Travis Smiley, um, who most of you should know, and he has a new book out called "Death of a King: The Real Story of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr." final year, and I want to thank you for joining us, Travis. Um My pleasure. Everyone knows. Thank you, everyone knows the, uh, um, the U2 song that starts early morning, April 4, um, but you, your book starts off at a different um, April 4, a different morning, that actually is somewhat pivotal in Dr. King's life. Why don't you tell yeah, us about
4: this that? Death, yeah, this book, Death of a King, is about the last year in Dr. King's life. Um, there's so many books that have been written about his life and legacy, and he has three principal biographers who I love and respect, uh, uh, Taylor Branch, David Garrow, and Claiborne Carson, but no book until this one, Death of a King, looks at just the last year of his life, April 4, 1967 to April 4, 1968. Now, why are those dates relevant? Because April 4, 1967, he gives the most controversial speech of his life. It's called Beyond Vietnam. He calls America in that speech the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today, Uh, obviously not uh, a ringing endorsement of u.s foreign policy and in that speech he goes on to call uh, america's attention to what he calls the triple threat facing our democracy the triple threat of racism poverty and militarism the price he paid for giving that truthful speech was that the next day and for the last year of his life everything and everybody turned against him the white house the media white america black America, his own organization. He couldn't get a book deal, couldn't get a paid speech. He died bankrupt. Terry Belafonte had to pay for the funeral, etc., etc., etc. For giving that speech, everybody and everything turns against him and they kill him one year to the day later, April 4, 1968. So this is the story of Dr. King that most of us just don't know.
3: And and it's interesting because one of the first cases I had in law school involved um, in it's a property dispute, intellectual property, over the king. The king estate suing someone for making a bronze bust of King that was unauthorized, and they weren't paying any royalties. But today, twenty years later, you know, after we've had the, the Martin Luther King holiday for for a generation, you know, many people, many people, Martin Luther King, and especially the the holiday, is really, he's just a car salesman now. You know, he's become this icon that people don't really appreciate what it means. And is that what you're trying to address?
4: Yeah, I think that he has been, um, I didn't put it this way, uh, Bennett, his martyrdom has undermined his message. Uh, we focus so much on the martyrdom of him that we really haven't come to deal with the subversive truth that he was trying to tell us about this message uh, that our democracy was um, was damned, quite frankly, if we didn't do something about this triple threat of racism, poverty, and militarism. And on top of that, in the almost five decades since he's been gone, um, he's become this sort of commodity. He's been commercialized, to your point. Um, and I am troubled by that um, in many uh, different ways in myriad ways, in fact. Um, and so um, I hope that what this book does is to get us to focus again on the truth that he was trying to tell us as inconvenient, uncomfortable, or unsettling as it might have been. Let's focus on the truth of what he was trying to get us to deal with because I believe this book is um, is a cautionary tale for what happens to a democracy that doesn't listen to its truth-tellers, uh, truth-tellers about uh, racism, poverty, militarism, truth-tellers contemporarily, about um poverty and and immigration and uh the use of these drones and the environment. there are truth tellers every day trying to get us to deal with what's threatening our democracy today. What are we doing today that we're going to end up apologizing or admitting that we were wrong about tomorrow. That conversation is real and dynamic and we ignore it at our own peril uh and King is exhibit A in that regard, but this commercialization and uh uh, the the um, you know the commodification of him and 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 and, and money is um, is troubling to say the least.
3: Now you, your book talks about the reaction to the speech, and, and one of the surprising thing for me was to see how the black community turned on him. You know, from um, you know, Carl Rowan, you know, the leading black uh, columnist, you know, former ambassador to you know, Sweden under Kennedy. And um, from to the NWVP itself, and um, yeah,
4: no, it was um, he, it was it was ugly. It was ugly. And it was vicious. The last poll taken in his life found that seventy-five percent of the American people, nearly three quarters of the American people, thought he was irrelevant. Um, and inside of Black America, that number goes up to almost sixty percent. Almost sixty percent of Black people thought. He was presiding on ground. So you're right. Roy Wilkins and the NAACP come out against him. Whitney Young and the Urban League come out against him. Thurgood Marshall had nasty things to say about him. Ralph Bunch, another Nobel laureate, uh, opposed him. Um, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was just outright vicious. Uh, As I said, Carl Rowan and the other black media turned against him. It was ugly. The way that his own organization, SCLC, passed a resolution to condemn him. For coming out against the war, and so it's 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 a it's an ugly last mile of the way, so to speak, that he has to walk basically by himself.
3: Now, the night before he dies, he gives his prophetic speech. You know, I've seen the mountaintop. Do, do, was that just a, a weary king from a very long hard year, or do do you think he had a sense of his mortality?
4: Uh, no doubt about the latter. He definitely had a sense of it. He knew there was a bullet out there that had his name on it. He'd been telling his own. Circle that he knew his time was limited, and of course nobody in his circle wants to hear that. Not certainly not his wife, Coretta, not his staff and right. friends and colleagues. They don't want to, they don't want to hear that I'm going to leave you sometime soon. So that's it's a hard truth to tell to your loved ones, and yet he knew it. Uh, and there are stories in the book Death of a King that we've written that, that that underscore that many many months prior to giving that particular speech that people seem to know in mass, he knew that um, that his time um, on earth was was limited. As a matter of fact, uh, literally. An hour or two, a couple of hours before he's assassinated, he is in a hotel at the Lorraine and says to a gathering of people in his hotel room that I'd rather be dead than be afraid. I'd rather be dead than be afraid, not knowing that literally, you know, not too many um, uh, minutes later he'd coming. be on the balcony assassinated. Yeah.
3: Now, in your book, obviously, you know, the 60s was such a fascinating era and it was such a period of homo. but it was also such a period of giants and heroes you know, from John Kennedy. Lyndon Johnson is both, you know, a tragic hero. But, you know, paralleling King, you have Cesar Chavez, you know, with his hunger strike and his organizing for farm workers. And, and even Bobby Kennedy, you know, when he went to Mississippi and, you know, he was really trying to advocate for poverty. And so you had three, you know, very iconic figures all at the same time, you know, pushing for poverty. And, you know, with King's death and Kennedy's death, you know, has anyone since really spoken up, stepped forward to really carry that banner?
4: Uh No, <laughs> no president <laughs> since Johnson made the eradication. Huh?
3: I said in a word. <laughs> Excuse- no. Yeah, in a word. No. Yeah.
4: No one since. No one since Johnson has stepped up to make the eradication of poverty a major um priority in his administration. Um, John Edwards, you know, was raising this issue probably on his campaign. Of course, he derailed himself famously as we, as we no. now all know, but he was raising this issue uh, during his campaign that was going to be the centerpiece of his campaign, quite frankly. So he was courageous about that. And of course, there are a lot of people whose names we don't know. There are some people's names we do know, like Maren Wright Edelman the children's defense fund who was a king disciple and, and king colleague so there are all kinds of folk who've been doing this kind of work for years on the issue of poverty many of them their names we don't know as i've been traveling the country for years talking about poverty and working on it and writing books about it and doing specials and series about it for pbs and public radio i know this you know subject matter rather well and so i've met a lot of people who are doing the, the heavy lifting doing the righteous work uh doing the you know doing uh, what needs to be done to make this issue a priority? So there are people out there doing this every day. I don't want us to think that there aren't, but at the national level, at the federal level, at the level uh, where it really could make a difference, we have not had the kind of moral authority, the kind of moral clarity, and the kind of moral leadership that we need to really make the eradication of poverty in America uh, real.
3: You know, one what, what of the pieces. I occasionally for Huffington Post. And one of the pieces that I, I most enjoyed writing was in 2007 I wrote a piece on what would Bobby do referring to Bobby Kennedy and Peter yeah. Edelman Marion's husband was my law professor and so I contacted yeah, I him and had him review the, the piece and we kind of worked on it together and it, was, it was a great pleasure to work with him and talk to him about you know because he met Marion you know in Mississippi and on the poverty campaign sure. and um and to see you know what what can what can be done today and, and yeah you're right there was excitement at that time because of John Edwards it was focusing on those issues for the first time and um but unfortunately as you mentioned you know that that campaign imploded and you know, why is it that poverty is ignored is it race is it just you know it you know it doesn't have economic power it doesn't have a Koch brothers or what is your what is your
4: yeah well the, the short the, the short answer is that, um, that it's hard to get um, um, bipartisan consensus on anything in Washington, as we now certainly right. know. Hard to get bipartisan consensus on anything except for the fact that the poor apparently don't matter. In this country, right. there's a highway into poverty but barely a sidewalk out. In this country, we know that Washington and the entire process in Washington is bought and bossed by big money and big business. We know that poor people oftentimes tend not to vote uh, we know that uh, K Street is not lined with lobbyists fighting for the best interest of poor people. And we know that when people don't give voice to what's happening to the poor in this country, then their suffering is rendered invisible. Uh, and so um, when, when, when the census uh, tells us that one out of two Americans, one out of two, is either in or near poverty, and by or near they mean a paycheck or two away, when one out of two of us is in or near poverty, that means 150 million Americans are wrestling with this particular issue. And so these numbers are not sustainable. 1% of the people cannot continue to own and control 40% of the wealth. The top 400 richest Americans have wealth equivalent to the bottom 150 million fellow citizens. Those numbers are not sustainable. And so that's why I argue that poverty is threatening our democracy, that poverty is a matter of national security that uh, we, you know, are moving closer to an oligarchy, a plutocracy, but this is not how a democracy works, and we got to come to terms with that sooner than later.
3: You know, I I was in Florida in the 2012 election as part of the uh, Obama legal team, you know, protecting voting rights, and uh, I was at a polling place in Broward County, and I saw people stand in line till midnight to vote, and um, there were plenty of voting machines, but they weren't all deployed, and they knew why they were in line. They knew that you know, Governor Scott did not want them to vote, and, and they weren't moving. Right? You know, they refused, yep. and I thought, you know, the whole I, I reminded of the, the the chant from, you know, Selma. Ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. And it dawned on me, Selma's just you know over the border, and here we are in yes. the next year, fifty years, and we're still fighting the same fight. What would King have to say?
4: Yep. He'd be saying it's a great. Place to close. They're calling me for some other stuff. I got to do. I mean, love talking to you, Bennett. Um, but it's a great, it's a great exit question because um, if King were here uh, to your powerful question, he'd be saying the same thing now he was saying then—that um, this triple threat facing our country in Ferguson, Missouri, and beyond still exists: racism. Poverty and militarism is racism. That is poverty and militarism. Still, the same triple threat facing our democracy. And the sad part that you just underscored brilliantly in your analysis is so many of the battles that King fought, King and others fought and won, are now being you know revisited upon us. Um, things, cases that we thought were closed are now being reopened, uh, and um, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act. I mean, now is no time for slacking. Now is time for us to be diligent, to be vigilant. Uh, freedom Ain't Free, as you well know, and I think in many ways King would be pleased with the progress we've made, but there's so much uh, that we have to fight to hold on to, and I hope that this book, Death of a King, will inspire us by reminding us that um, there is a truth that needs to be told, um, and in, in the conclusion, um, there is a price to be paid for telling that truth, but there's a greater price to be paid for living a lie. I just don't want to right. live a lie.
3: Well, thank you very much, Tabitha. There you gotta go. Thank you, Guess man, for your King. Time. Be sure to read it. All the best to you.
4: Appreciate you, Bennett. Take care of my brother.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.
4: All right. Thank you for the time. Bye-bye.
3: Thank you. We do know one thing. Dr. King would certainly listen to Tavis's show, and hopefully he'll listen to this one as well. But um, that was um, Tavis Smiley, Death of a King, and um, available on Little Brown Books. And be sure to check him out at the Miami Book Fair.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
5: So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com.
1: The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
5: The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report.
2: And I have the very good fortune of having uh, Rabbi Abraham Cooper from the Wiesenthal Center of Digital Terrorism and Hate Project that he leads. And um, Rabbi, are you with us?
7: Yes, that's Thank you for having me on.
2: I want to thank you for joining us, and this is an important topic. And um, and you know, it's, um, it's it's hard to convey. Um, you know, how does one address something like this? But let's start with the basics, um, Dr. Cooper. Can you tell us a, a little bit about the Simon Wiesenthal Center? Well,
7: um, I came to Los Angeles 36 years ago. Uh, this month, to help found the Simon Wiesenthal Center together with Rabbi Marvin Heyer. We're an international Jewish human rights uh, NGO. Uh, we have status at the uh, United Nations, uh, UNESCO, many. We're teaching, if you will, an uh, unusual kind of teaching institution, meaning museums, uh, documentary films. We have two Academy Awards. Uh, and we are named. Uh, we were named initially in honor and now in memory of the great Nazi hunter, Simon Wiesenthal. Mr. Wiesenthal was a victim of the Nazis because uh, he was born Jewish, not because of anything he or six million other uh, innocent uh, people had done in Europe. Uh, was uh, liberated by the United States military in Mauthausen in May 1945. He weighed uh, under 90 pounds. He and his wife lost. 89 members of their family, they'd been trained as an architect, decided to to give uh, uh, value and meaning to his life after the war by what he thought would be three or four years of helping the U.S. go after uh, the perpetrators of uh, genocide. And that turned into his uh, lifelong uh, activity of uh, going after the perpetrators uh, of mass murder Uh, at a time during the years and decades of the Cold War when, frankly, nobody was, no government was interested in it and yet managed to bring 1,100 of those criminals before the Bar of Justice. And when we asked him back in 1977 for his good name, he really had only one question. He said, look, of course you're going to help me go after the old Nazis, but I'm an activist and I want to know whether or not you'll also be an institution that will be uh, on the look at To combat uh, contemporary hatred, and to look for the early signs uh, that um, we missed in the 1920s and 30s with uh, with Adolf Hitler. So um, I head up the social action uh, activity of our uh, our center. Obviously, we've entered the final phase of the Nazi war criminal issue with the uh, last of the perpetrators, witnesses, and victims inexorably leaving uh, history stage. But um, the issue of uh, today's bigots and racists is really what's been my job over the last uh, three decades. And uh, basically, uh, we discovered uh, going back about, uh, well, close to 20 years ago, we were doing some undercover work uh, in Germany in the neo-Nazi movement there. And uh, some of the activity here of uh, KKK types was that even before the Internet, many of the leaders, racists, Nazis, etc., people totally on the margins, uh, you know, they were called the lunatic fringe, but they had rather sophisticated approach to technology, including, you know, using computers and and trying to get organized. And so when the Internet uh, came came, uh, to be, uh, we just followed you know the rats and they went online uh, the hate groups here in the US uh, initially, uh, the extremists, bigots, uh, white supremacists like David Duke and others flocked to the internet uh, because understanding its incredible marketing potential early, understanding also that because the First Amendment rights, uh, they probably would have a much better chance of getting access uh, to the public and also in targeting specific audiences. Uh, that was uh, led us to start 15 years ago, a project called Digital Hate. And later on, on September twelfth, two 2001, we changed it to Digital Terrorism and Hate.
2: Now, so, um, I, d- I just want to point out that um, I think some 72 years ago today, um, an entire town in um, Lithuania, Grost, Lithuania, was um, all the entire Jewish population of the town was exterminated today. I'm um, just noticing that. And um, but in 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 dealing with hate groups today, coming from you know also prosecuting Nazis, um, do people have a perception that well the Nazis were so bad that 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 was just, they're just they're unique class and, and nothing can ever be that bad. You know, just, do they get so, um, not for lack of a better word, glamorized as being so evil that it's hard to imagine something else approaching them?
7: Well, uh, that is one of the uh, challenges. I think the biggest challenge of all is right now the distance of uh, time. Uh, America's greatest generation is also leaving the stage. Yes, so Vietnam is uh, war is considered ancient history, and World War II, you know, for many young people, uh, really is uh, irrelevant. So there there is an erosion uh, uh, in terms of understanding the depths and the scopes of the racism and hate uh, and and murderous genocide of the Nazis, on the one hand, and on the other hand, a fascination. Uh, in let's say in Asia right now, we have this bizarre but very troubling trend of the embrace of Nazi symbols, Hitler and all the rest uh, in measure, one measure because Hitler was a strong leader. They didn't know anything about the other stuff he did because they're from Asia and they their history does not, re, did not really get directly impacted by Nazi Germany. The aesthetics of the Nazi symbols are used in sports bars, uh, uh, in advertising campaigns. Uh, it, it It is... A problem even there. So uh, the first, uh, the most important you know, disinfectant for hate is the truth. It's historic truth. And the challenge is, how do we educate younger generations about what really happened to real people? Uh, the good news is, you know, there's some wonderful things going on online all over the world. The bad news is that extremists of all uh, ilk both the people we would call, you know, bigots and racists, and also those seeking to uh, promote, fundraise, and train for terrorism. They also understand the uh, historic um, potential of the Internet, especially now with social networking. So the front lines, the, uh, the battle really for the hearts and minds of uh, young people here in the States and, and all over the world is being fought out uh, uh, within uh, the internet technologies, and uh, I wouldn't say so far that the good guys have uh, won the day. Neither in the marketplace of ideas, and, and neither in uh, degrading the uh, the uh, use by terrorists of internet uh, technologies.
2: Now it, it's interesting you talk about um, rewriting history or denial, and um, you know I mentioned briefly offline, that I actually had an encounter with a a white supremacist group, and they objected to something I had written about the the history of the um, Confederate battle flag, and and so I was getting inundated with emails that all contained um, almost virtually identical excerpts of speeches by uh, Lincoln, and that all were um, virtually identical in leaving out key passages to render give them complete opposite meanings and um, you know, just the whole effort to of them to rewrite the history of the civil war and then you know, just recently here and out in 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 southern california we've had the instance of the city of Glendale um, putting up a monument to the um, Korean comfort women who were constricted into service by the Japanese army and, you know, forced into, you know, basically um, being um, prostitutes for the army. And um, the be getting at the city being attacked by the right wing in Japan, who still to this day refuse to, to uh, acknowledge what has happened. And then, you know, the same city is also very active with an Armenian community and the, dealing with a, a Turkish government that refuses to, to deal with what is going on. And so the battle of history is very much present, it seems.
7: Right. I think maybe the most uh, relevant um, example. Uh, would be uh, mlking.org. You have a website that's been up there for over a decade, uh, and we know that every year around January, virtually every middle school, junior, and senior high school student has got to do a project about Martin Luther King Jr. Right? mlking.org purports to be a resource for people to look at uh, when they're doing their research. Of course, it's put up by the white supremacists. So there is no online librarian. There is no quality control. You do have in the United States, obviously, uh, when we're talking about hate groups, anyway, terrorism, I think, is different. You know, the, the bottom line of freedom of speech. And so the challenge, and you're an attorney, so you deal with these issues. The, our approach from the Wiesenthal Center, globally, at looking at these issues is we deal with it based on the democracy In which the material is uh, is uh, uh, posted. So, for example, in Canada, our neighbor to the north, they have very strong anti-hate laws, and they can also tell they tell the providers if there's material uh, that you allow to be provided on your service that's used uh, to uh, uh, to inspire or to guide someone into a violent. Uh, uh, act of hate, you can be held uh, culpable as well. So Canada, Canadians do actually a pretty good job of scrubbing uh, the, the uh, hate, hate stuff. In fact, most of it gets imported here. Our, our approach on the issue of hate is to go to the providers and to point out uh, something you're very familiar with because you're an attorney, but most of us consumers never look at that when you hit that gray button that says, I agree, yes. and none of us, except for well-paid lawyers like uh, Bennett, uh, <laughs> we never read it. But if you do read the boilerplate language of the contract, uh, that in fact does include, that if you misuse the service, yes, have the right to throw you the hell off. So that has been our uh, uh, approach and our, the way we've encouraged people in the United States is to not just say, isn't that terrible, but to be proactive and to uh, get the bums thrown off, if you will, even if it means they'll find another way to uh, to get back on. And um, that extends also to social networking. We have very uh, good relationships with uh, Facebook and we're in contact with most other uh, companies, which is, uh, our basic approach is to the companies, set your own rules, be transparent about those rules, make sure that individuals your comp- or groups that want an answer don't have to deal with the Wizard of Oz. Uh, if you, you know, the Wizard of Oz uh, uh, syndrome is when you send an email and you get a uh, automatic email response that basically says, "Thanks a lot." If we feel like responding to you, we'll send you another email. You have to actually put people on on the case in order to be a good online citizens, and that's our approach in the states because of First Amendment. Elsewhere, it's much more direct action because a lot of that kind of material is actionable in places like France and Germany and Australia. Uh, UK uh, etc so it is very very complex and we uh, the W Center and I've written about this extensively I think you know that yes uh, we we believe that we need to create a new consortium sort of new strategies of bringing uh, everyone to the table and rather than talk about uh, international statutes from the UN which is usually going to create, only make people like Cuba and uh, and China happy uh, is to get some voluntary cooperation going on dealing with open source material in order to degrade the bad guys. Right now, we're not doing a very good job individually or collectively in dealing with these multiple challenges.
2: Now, are there any actors that, you know, in terms of... You- The uh, providers that you deal with domestically that have been very um, cooperative or or shown great foresight in this area? Uh,
7: I would say that the the company uh, that has shown uh, the most leadership directly on the questions that we've raised has been Facebook. In fact, a guy, I don't know if he's related to you, but Chris Kelly. uh, was the founding uh, uh, person who wrote their terms of use. Uh, and when, um, you know, it was basically the company was pretty much just starting. And we met, I brought to him about five dozen um, examples, including homophobic, anti-Semitic stuff. And he was surprised because he thought they had a handle on it, and it was already bigger than they had imagined. But the most important thing was, That the terms of usage for Facebook, their own business model, anticipated people trying to leverage the technology and the service to do illegal or, uh, you know, racist or or hateful things. So we already had a basis for a conversation. Today, as you know, Facebook, I think, has over a billion separate users worldwide. Yes. But to their credit, they have now in place, and we usually visit them at least once a year, uh, two teams, one in, uh, up in the Silicon Valley and one in Ireland. And what they do all day is look at these materials, I think in about 17 languages, and uh, scrub and delete the stuff that doesn't belong there. Uh, in addition to that, it means that when the Simon Wiesenthal Center researchers or someone else comes to them, you can actually submit a question or uh, a page and get an answer, a coherent answer from a human being. Now, which means we don't agree about everything. We think that they are way too much uh, Facebook pages that attack uh, all the religion. Sure. And, uh, so, but nonetheless, with great respect for them institutionally, uh, that where they've shown some real leadership. Google has done some very interesting things um, uh, in approaching uh, these issues. I think that also I see them as more part of the, uh, the solution, ultimately part of the solution and the problem. On the other hand, YouTube has been very sloppy uh, and there's w- been way too much material on YouTube That uh, can uh, and has instructed people about how to uh, deploy in a terroristic fashion using uh, materials available at home. So there's no excuse for that kind of material being on. And to date, uh, the we've given uh, Twitter an F. Wow. Uh, Um. They they have been uh, generally unresponsive. They just finally had to give over some material to the Jewish community that's under siege in France. Uh, uh, Because they were being sued in court, uh, they refused to even uh, uh, meet with us. But actually, they don't have to meet with the Wiesenthal Center. All they have to do is go across the street and sit down with the Facebook folks and come up with their own rules. Because the problem with Twitter is they are uh, being used by terrorist organizations. Uh, You're just a click away on Twitter from getting to uh, a massive unfortunately all too accurate terrorism library uh... as well as racist hashtags and all the rest uh, i'm hoping that what we're dealing with is a company that never expected to be as successful as it is uh... and uh... maybe will eventually and soon wake up to its responsibility to be a good neighbor And in, in case you've noticed I haven't spoken very much about governments right uh... I, Look, I'm an American citizen when it comes to speech, I like to maximize speech. So in the areas of hate, uh we don't we would prefer not to have to look at laws that are probably not going to stand up anyway in any American court of law. Right. So we don't need uh, grandstanding or posturing. We really need a, you know, a a sort of online community commitment uh to figure out a way to deal, isolate, marginalize. We're never going to uh, get rid of all the hatred we haven't been able to get rid of the hatred in the real world so you're not able to eliminate exactly. it online however oh. uh you know when it comes to the issue of terrorism we have a completely different approach
2: now um okay. just just for the record um Chris Kelly is um, is a friend and but not a relative. Um, although strangely enough, we have brothers of the, of the same name. And um, and at one point, um, while Chris was uh, with Facebook, there was also a director of security named Max Kelly. So, Good. Um,
7: <laughs> well, I hope you send them your bills.
2: And um, you yeah, know, it, it definitely clients were perplexed by it. But in any event, we're going to take a short break. But when we come back, we'll have more on this important important topic with um, Rabbi Cooper.
1: Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors.
5: Looking for a better way to get more traffic and interaction to your Facebook page? Imagine Facebook interactivity on your page like you've never seen. Introducing your new Facebook marketing fix, So Social,
6: At bruceclay.com.
5: ShipStation helps online retailers ship orders faster. It's so easy to set up and use. ShipStation gives you tools to automatically import, manage, and ship your orders in the most cost efficient way. Save money with the best USPS rates possible, as well as a free USPS account. ShipStation integrates with all the most popular e commerce platforms and shipping carriers. Get shipping done, no matter where you sell or how you ship. WebmasterRadio.fm listeners get an additional 30 days free after the free 30-day trial. Go to ShipStation.com WebmasterRadio now. Shipping nirvana starts here. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point, click, and it's live in real time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. The best
1: gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm.
5: The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report.
2: And we're back. Um, We're continuing our discussion on um, digital hate. Um, with uh, Rabbi Cooper, with this, um, the Wiesenthal Center of Digital Terrorism and Hate Project that he leads. And um, and he recently, in May, got, was in, on Capitol Hill presenting um, the, um, the center's 2013 report on digital hate. And um, tell us about that. Uh,
7: right. Well, we put out an annual uh, report. Uh, we're still using what's now called old technology, putting it out on CD-ROM. In the early years, we were often the 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 only source, really, of information and training in this area to a lot of local law enforcement. Of course, the world's changed dramatically. Everyone is online now. But what we do is... Um, we're currently tracking about 20,000 problematic uh, hate sites, uh, Facebook pages, YouTubes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we don't claim that that's uh, anywhere near the real number, but it is a snapshot uh, that includes trends of what's going on, the uh, the growth, the spike uh, from 15,000 from last year primarily uh, is the explosion on uh, on Twitter. Now, uh, we were scheduled to do a briefing on Capitol Hill even before the Boston Marathon uh, uh, take, um, uh, you know, took place. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that in our report that was released uh, well before that attack, we actually had uh, the uh, locations from which the two terrorists in Boston had downloaded the information about how to make the pressure cooker bomb, et cetera, et cetera. And what I said on Capitol Hill was that unless there is a, a, a change, something changes in terms of uh, online, uh, what's going on on the internet, there will be increasing numbers of uh, Boston Marathon type of attacks, Whether attacks, or individuals who are linked to extremists uh, and terrorists overseas. Uh, right now. We have a situation in which uh, the bad guys, the very, very bad guys, who not only want to insult us, but want to kill us, uh, are successfully leveraging uh, the cutting-edge technologies of the Internet uh, to, uh, to threaten all of us. And uh, it should be serving as a, as a wake-up call. I hope it will be. And part of what I do in, in my work is not only be in Capitol Hill, I've also had uh, numerous meetings in Berlin. Uh, with the uh, uh, various uh, agencies, including the folks in the Ministry of Interior. I've met with the uh, Minister of Interior in in France, Uh, the top uh, folks who bring everyday Internet um, reports to the Prime Minister of the Netherlands. I've spoken with CSIS, Homeland Security. Uh, The people on the front line in law enforcement and intelligence pretty much, I think have the same sort of uh, approach. Uh, they're all tasked with trying to find the virtual needle in the haystack of who, God forbid the next lone wolf attacker would be. But there's no real uh, interest in becoming a Big brother and stealing all of our remaining, whatever's left of our uh, privacy and right. our rights. And that means, as far as where I sit, that leads up, leaves us with only one other option we've got to get the collective genius of silicon valleys uh... the people who are uh... paid in democracies to keep up safe first uh, uh... freedom of speech uh... advocates and ngos like the wiesenthal center we have to sit down and talk because we have found in our uh... interaction with facebook is that once you can get the attention of the young people who are giving us every day this incredible, just a fantastic new uh, technological capabilities, once you put this issue on their radar screen, they can actually help do a lot more to uh, degrade and debase uh, the efforts of uh, of terrorists. And, uh, you know, uh, we grew up at a time when they said all politics is local. Right. Well, with the internet every local incident is global and uh... you know the the bad guys the terrorist organizations uh... already you know you can argue they have they don't have to worry about the street in afghanistan or pakistan or iraq or yemen uh... but they're interested in in creating uh... adherence financial help and and operatives all over the world i know that for facebook One of the um, uh, important moments for them institutionally is when we brought to them a Facebook page from Indonesia, a smiling young man uh, who's now will be in jail for the rest of his life. He raised the money and gave to the terrorists who uh, did the deadly uh, second attack on the Marriott Hotel in Jakarta. He raised the money on Facebook for that that attack. Now, obviously, he didn't say it's going to be for the hotel. No. But the fact of the matter is, uh, it, it, when they saw that and their first reaction was, well, we're not in business for that, to service, you know, these the, these killers. Um, if we can get the collective attention of uh, the geniuses that are way, way ahead of the governments anyway in all these technologies, light years ahead, then I think we have a chance of working together to degrade and... Uh, and and the base what right now is still a very very successful uh, deployment uh... certainly by the terrorists and by many of the extremists including you know the person that you saw it was demonstrating there there's also a an effort across europe on the part of extreme far-right groups to dress themselves up in legitimate garb uh, they're interested in being in the mainstream and grabbing mainstream power in the Ukraine, in Hungary, in France, in Greece, in Spain, in the UK, and the internet is the perfect place for them, sort of uh, um, clean up their appearance, if not what they believe in, come up with a vocabulary that sounds reasonable for main mainstream uh, debate and discussion, and uh, it is an extraordinarily uh, difficult uh, challenge because they get to uh dictate how they're viewed in the marketplace of ideas and um that's going to be a huge a growing challenge as young people who more and more rely on uh the internet for their news and their perspective they don't even watch uh this you know CBS uh, evening news or 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 CNN or MSNBC yeah. or Fox. they they're gone they're long gone so they're online and as you know, uh, especially in the, socially, uh, in, in the social networking uh, world, you c- you're able to create uh, and to validate your own lifestyle and your own worldview. Right. You're only going right. to hear dissenting views if you choose to let it in. Unfortunately, <laughs> that kind of terrain is tailor-made for extremists. So, For example, you mentioned the tragedy of Trayvon Mar- Martin's death and Zimmerman. Uh, I'm not going to give any details, but they're online games right? I've uh, heard already of I've posted, uh, you know, about sort of, you know, go out and, you know, shoot someone down. You can figure out the rest. So when you talk about the marketing, it's not just, you know, hate speech. It's terrorism libraries. It's games in which you win if you uh, shoot down the wetbacks coming across the Rio Grande. Uh, or or, uh, they're anti-gay games. There are games uh, uh, targeting Turks in Germany, Holocaust denial, uh, stuff from Hezbollah looking to try to get young people in the Arab and Muslim world to to embrace their worldview. Whatever uh, the Internet technologies uh, introduce and make available to the public, they are already there. So the challenge... It's always a game of catch up and it's a deadly game right now for, uh, you know, for law enforcement. And for those of us who are dealing with open source material, it is to figure out how do we catch up in the marketplace of ideas to reach young people so they're not infected by this this kind of uh, of uh, advertising and targeting. You know, it's
2: interesting that you brought up Indonesia and in the example of the, the, the gentleman who raised money through um, Facebook for the Jakarta bombing. Um, uh, Akamai just released their, um, t- their first quarter 2013 State of the Internet report um, just this week. And um, in the fourth quarter of 2012, Indonesia accounted for 0.5% of all Internet attack traffic. Less than one percent. In the first quarter of 2013, um, they become a superpower. They now account for 21 percent of all attack traffic. And um, you know, it's it's, there. There have been talks about you know growing cybercrime outfits in Indonesia, but yeah, you got to wonder what is fueling all this, and um, and to what extent can this be tied to any uh, extremism?
7: Well, the the answer is um, I've been to Indonesia on a number of occasions. I actually um, uh, helped run uh, in Bali uh, a, a multi faith uh, conference against terrorism. You know, basically right nearby, two hundred people where two hundred people tourists were murdered. Uh-huh. Um, it is the most um, populous Muslim country in the world. For it what? has it has a tradition of moderation. But it's targeted by the Iranians and other extremists. And as you know, it doesn't take many people to uh, change uh, history. Look, access to the Internet, uh, you know, uh, unleashes um, freedom to do a lot of things. Hopefully most people, and they do, choose to do positive things with it. But it also opens up, uh, you know, a world, uh, you know, to criminals and terrorists. Look what the North Koreans are doing. Uh, in, in terms of, you know, cyber wars, cyber crime. Uh, our area, obviously, of concern is really in the marketplace of ideas and in the right. promotion directly of terrorism. But what, what you rarely brought, brought up right now is also just the tip of the iceberg of how much the Internet is changing, uh, sort of upending all of our assumptions. So, for example, I saw one report last year that said in Pakistan, the number one um, uh, form of communication today in Pakistan is Facebook. Wow! So, does anybody have any clue what's being said or how it's being used over there? I don't think so. Uh, should they be? Yes, uh, probably. It be, yeah. So it, it is. It is a game changer. It's really massive, and, and we again there are technological tools that exist and that can be fine tuned in order to. Um, you know, help us uh, track stuff. But I think, first and foremost, we need awareness within the Internet community itself and especially among young people. So, for example, um, about now a little over a year ago, we created a special app, password-sensitive app, for um, law enforcement so they can get real-time access to our research. And that was very favorably, um, you know, responded to. Uh, and now we're working on uh, ways in which so we can communicate directly with young people. Uh, in other words, my experience has been over the last 15 years that if I'm talking to a mixed group of adults and, and teenagers about these issues, inevitably the adults are completely shocked. They just can't, they, they haven't seen any of this. They're, they're in, uh, they suddenly wake up and say, oh my God, I can't use the internet as a babysitter for my kids. But when you look at the kids, within about five minutes, they're bored because they have seen everything. Right. And so we have to also now figure out a way of how do we educate and empower young people to be part of the solution because they're the ones who are, uh, you know, who are targeted. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your insight
2: and your dedication to this important issue. And uh, I know you have an, an important call to get on. So I want to thank you for joining us again. Um, that was uh, Rabbi um, Abraham Cooper with the Simon Weeds Law Center. And we thank you very much. We'll be back after these messages. This is Bennett Kelly at the Internet Law Center. Quarters adjourned. We'll see you next week.